Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Dara Horn is the award-winning author of five novels, um, including Image, The World to Come, All Other Nights, Guide for the Perplexed, and Eternal Life, and her book of essays, People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present. She is one of Granta Magazine's Best Young American Novelists in 2007, recipient of two National Jewish Book Awards, the Edward Lewis Walland Award, the Harold Uribolo Award, which is, is through Hadassah Magazine, and the Reform Judaism Fiction Prize. And she was a finalist for the Wingate Prize, the Simpson Family Literary Prize, and the Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. Not shabby. <laughs> Her books have been selected as New York Times Notable Books, Book List 25 Best Books of the Decade, San Francisco Chronicles Best Books of the Year, and her books are translated into 11 languages. Her nonfiction work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, the Smithsonian, and the mag magazine, sorry, and the Jewish Review of Books, and she's a regular columnist for Tablet Magazine. She's taught courses in, in, um, in Yiddish and Hebrew at Sarah Lawrence College, Yeshiva University. She held the Gerald Weinstock Visiting Professorship in Jewish Studies at Harvard. She's lectured for audiences in hundreds of venues throughout America, Israel, and Australia. And she currently lives in New Jersey with her husband and her four children. A little bit back history. She attended uh, Milburn High School, was co-captain of the Quiz Bowl team, Right? I mean, it's important stuff. Um, the family traveled internationally during her childhood, and her parents encouraged her and her siblings to write journals about their trips. When she was 14, she won a trip to Poland and Israel in a quiz competition about Israeli history, and then wrote about her trip for Hadassah Magazine that was nominated for a National Magazine Award in 1993. I mean, 14, guys. She received a BA in Comparative Literature Summa Cum Laude in 1999, her PhD in comparative literature in Hebrew and Yiddish in 2006, both from Harvard, finished her master's degree in Hebrew literature at Cambridge, during which time she also wrote a novel. Um, she's um, served as, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know if I said this, served as distinguished visiting scholar at Yeshiva University, University during the 2019 to 2020 academic year. The book that she's going to talk with us about has won the National Jewish Book Award, the New York Times Notable Book Best Books of 2021, Natan Notable Books Fall 2021, finalist for the 2021 Kirkus Prize, publishes weekly Best Books of 2021, and is an American Library Association Notable Book. And with all of that, it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Daryl Horn. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to thank everyone. And I'm, I'm going to get all the names wrong of the many organizations that were involved in inviting me here tonight. And I'm not going to uh, shoot myself in the foot by trying to list them and missing one. So thank you all for inviting me here. I'm really, really honored to be here um, and to talk with you about, um, as you heard, my, my most recent book, which is called People Love Dead Jews. And I still can't believe my publisher let me keep that title. Um, and I should say it's not just this book. I also um, I also have a spin-off podcast from this book, which is even worse. It's called Adventures with Dead Jews. And the production team and I, for this podcast, we're always joking about how we want to make merch, like 
coffee mugs, tote bags, beach towels, because you know no one's gonna take your seat at the pool with your people love dead Jews beach towel. And you know, I think that if this title makes you uncomfortable, well, that's entirely intentional because what's inside the book is gonna make you even more uncomfortable. And this is entirely intentional on my part because I feel that Jews in non-Jewish societies often feel the need to erase themselves in order to make other people feel comfortable. And that is part of the problem that this book exposes and explores. My goal is to make all of my readers, whatever background they are, as uncomfortable as possible. Um, I wanted, so people ask, ask like why I wrote this book and the origin story of this book is fairly recent. It goes back only to 2018, which was when Smithsonian Magazine approached me and asked me if I would write an essay for them about Anne Frank. And I got this request and I was overwhelmed with dread because I just thought, wow, I really don't wanna write an essay about Anne Frank that's then going to be disseminated in doctor's offices across America because that's what happens to Smithsonian Magazine. And so, you know, the normal thing to do would be to turn this assignment down, but I'm a writer, so I'm not a normal person. And instead, I kind of thought like, well, this is interesting. Why don't I want to write an essay for, for Smithsonian about Anne Frank? And that was when I remembered an incident that had happened at the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam earlier that year, again in 2018. And I love that for this audience, I do not have to now spend five minutes explaining what the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam is. And the incident that I had read about was about a young Jewish man who was working at that museum. And the museum would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. And he had appealed this decision to the board of the museum. The board of the museum then deliberated for four months and then finally relented and let this guy wear his yarmulke to work. I had read this uh, news item and I had just thought, you know, four months is a very long time for the Anne Frank Museum to ponder whether or not it was a great idea to force a Jew into hiding. Like they probably should have known this. And at that point I went back to Smithsonian Magazine and I said, you know what, I will write that piece for you about Anne Frank. It was not the piece they were perhaps expecting to get. The uh, first line of the piece was, people love dead Jews, living Jews, not so much. Unfortunately, they did not keep the title that I suggested, which this essay is now the first essay in this book. And uh, the title of the, of, the, of the essay in the book, which is strangely was not accepted by Smithsonian Magazine was everyone's second favorite dead Jew. For whatever reason, Smithsonian Magazine didn't like that title. Um, but I think that this, um, this story about this incident, the Anne Frank Museum really illustrates my two main points in this book, which are, People tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. And then the, the sort of flip side of that is that living Jews are required to erase themselves in order to gain public respect. So, you know, I kind of thought I got this whole thing out of my system. Um, and, you know, I'm like, I wrote this, 
I disseminated it in doctor's offices across America. Now I can go back to writing novels. The problem is this piece came out in Smithsonian Magazine in one of their fall issues in 2018. It was just a few days after that piece came out that there was the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Within hours of that attack, the New York Times calls me and is like, would you like to write about dead Jews? They did not say it that way, but that was what they meant. And at that point, I sort of realized, had this real, oh, and then six months later, there's another shooting at a synagogue. New York Times calls me again. As I put it in the book, I became the New York Times' go-to person for the emerging literary genre of synagogue shooting op-eds. And I'm like, you know, I didn't apply for this job. And at that point, I sort of realized, like, this perverse thing was going on where, like, my editors at mainstream magazines and newspapers, this is the only thing they wanted me to write about. And so at that point, I dove into this topic. And I thought, you know, the, un the one thing that I've learned in my 20 years as a novelist is that the uncomfortable moments are where the story is. And so I thought, I'm just going to explore this and see where it takes me. And those of you who read the book know that it takes me all over the world. Um, I explore this problem. Um, and the problem really is this sort of role that dead Jews play in a non-Jewish society. Um, so, you know, so there's a lot of angles to this, but tonight I want to specifically focus on the situation in the United States and really unpack the situation of American Jews today regarding anti-Semitism in America, which, you know, I mean, it's, I, I, I speak often about this topic and I feel like every time I speak about this topic, there's a new thing that just happened that I'm supposed to reference in this talk. So, um, you know, whatever the new thing that has happened today, which I mean, today was, you know, these people arrested in Michigan for trying to assassinate Jewish lawmakers in Michigan. I mean, that's just today's thing. It's like a fire hose. So, um, but, you know, we didn't, for those of us who don't remember the time before we had this fire hose going, I want to sort of unpack the situation of American Jews and this sort of weird little known history of American Jewish self-erasure in order to understand how we might change the story that we're currently living in. I am not going to solve this problem for you, sorry. Um, but I wanna dive right into it so that you can at least sort of understand how we got here and where we might go. Um, I, one of the, you heard a little bit to my, to my astonishment, um, you know, uh, you heard a little bit just now about like things I published very early in my career, like when I was in high school. Um, one of the pieces that uh, I published when I was in high school was um, when the Holocaust Museum in Washington first opened in 1993. Um, I was a teenager and I was invited by a teen magazine to go to Washington and cover the opening of this museum for a, tea, a, now, a now defunct teen magazine. And, you know, they published my article between, you know, a list of makeup tips and an article about bulimia. And, you know, this is, so I've been writing about dead juice for a long time. And I remember going to that and being amazed by how the children's in, exhibit in that museum, like brought visitors into the life of this adorable imaginary German Jewish child and his very American seeming imaginary life. Um, if you've been to that museum, you know, there's this thing called Daniel's story. You walk through this like kid's house, you see his soccer trophies, you see his dad's war medals from the you know, First World War. Um, you see his after school snacks, um, you know, and at the time I remember coming back from this trip and telling a Holocaust survivor who was a friend of our family about how wonderful this was and how well this exhibit helped American children see that Jewish kids who died in the Holocaust were just like them. 
And this Holocaust survivor shocked me by screaming at me, what if they weren't just like them? Would it have been okay to murder them if they weren't just like them? And she went on a whole rant, like, why do we have this kid's soccer trophies on the wall? Why don't we have his copies of the Mishnah or his uniform from his socialist Yiddish speaking youth group or his songbook from his Zionist youth club? Why do we have dad's war medals? Why don't we have dad's to fill in? Why don't we have dad's tickets to the Yiddish theater? Her point being that the Nazi project wasn't just about murdering 6 million Jews. It was about erasing Jewish civilization. Why are we participating in this erasure? I've thought about this a lot in the years since I met this, since I was yelled at by this woman. And I've also thought about this sort of strange situation we have where there's this sort of, what I've come to realize is a fatal flaw in the way that Jews have been permitted to express their identities in non-Jewish societies, which I feel reveals a failure of these societies to truly understand diversity. And I think that flaw has been there for a very, very long time. I'm wondering if anybody in this audience remembers a classic Hollywood film called Gentleman's Agreement. Okay, a lot of people have heard of this, especially people of the older generation have heard of this film. Um, for people who are not familiar with this, this was Gentleman's Agreement is the title of a wildly successful 1947 movie. This movie like was huge blockbuster and it also won like every Academy Award that year, best director, best picture, et cetera. This film is, it stars Gregory Peck as a dashing young journalist um, who moves from California to New York City to work for a magazine. And he's very disappointed when his editor gives him an assignment to write a series of articles about anti-Semitism. He thinks this is like the most boring assignment ever. And he's not wrong because anti-Semitism is pretty much the opposite of news. And so he's like, I need to find some cool angle to make this story exciting. And so then he comes up with this brilliant idea. And some of you have seen this film will remember that brilliant idea. He decides to go undercover as a Jew and find out if it changes the way people treat him. Spoiler alert, it changes the way people treat him. So this is like this exposure of American anti-Semitism. And what I think is really interesting, is like, you know, today we talk about um, anti-Semitic incidents, but of course, at the time when this film came out in 1947, it wasn't about incidents, right? It was like, you couldn't get a job. You couldn't stay in a hotel. I mean, these are like life-limiting things. And this is all sort of presented and exposed in this movie. And then it's like, yay, now, you know, Jews can live in fancy suburbs just like everyone else. That's sort of like the moral of the story at the end of Gentleman's Agreement. It's like Jews are just like everyone else. And that's why they can you know, live in places like Scottsdale. So my question for you is, what is wrong with this sort of happy story of vanquishing bigotry? Isn't that what we want to happen? Okay. Well, there's a joke that's often told about the production of that movie. Um, the joke goes like this. There's a stagehand who is working on that movie. And at one point, Moss Hart, who is the screenwriter, was on the set. And the stagehand comes up to Moss Hart and just says that, tells him, you know, how much he really loved this movie. And he thought the movie had a really wonderful moral. And Moss Hart then says, like, oh, what did you think the moral was? And the stagehand says, I learned that you should never be mean to a Jew because he might turn out to be a Gentile. And what's amazing about that joke to me 
is that that actually is the moral of gentlemen's agreement because the moral of that movie is like you know if you're a guy like Gregory Peck then like of course like we shouldn't hate you because you're just like everyone else I mean and there's a very deep problem with this which is that if the reason we shouldn't hate Jews is that Jews are just like everybody else Jews spent 3,000 years not being like everyone else uncoolness is basically Judaism's brand and this goes back 3,000 years to when like the whole ancient world is worshiping a Marvel cinematic universe of sexy deities. And the Jews are like the losers in the school cafeteria who are like, here we are over here with our bossy, unsexy, invisible God. Like Jews have never been cool. But what I think is really fascinating about this story is that like, it shows this necessity of self erasure, which is built into Jewish life in a non-Jewish society, especially in the United States. I have a story in the book that I call Legends of Dead Jews, which tells a story that many American Jews have heard in their families, which I call the myth of Ellis Island. This is a story that many people have heard, which goes something like this. My great grandfather was coming to Ellis Island as an immigrant and he had this last name that sounded super Jewish. And then there was this bumbling clerk at Ellis Island who like didn't understand his accent and wrote his name down wrong. And now our last name is something that sounds super not Jewish. Da -da -da. Spoiler alert, this never happened. No one at Ellis Island wrote down immigrants' names. Yeah, they got the names from the ship's manifest. They're compiled at the port of origin with documents, like state-issued documents, like passports. Like, this never happened. What we do have, tens of thousands of court records from New York City Civil Court of American Jews, not just the immigrants, their children, going to court and changing their own names. And the reason they're changing their own names is because of American anti-Semitism, because they can't get a job. Their children are being beaten up that's on the way to school. They can't stay in a hotel. They can't rent an apartment. What I think is really interesting is when I tell this story to Jewish audiences, whether I write about it online or if I speak about it in an audience like this, people get really mad at me. Invariably, there are people who like crowd me at the end of the talk or they like, you know, go to me in the, they'll pillory me in the comments. And they're like, well, maybe that's true for most people, but my great-grandfather was the exception. And I'm like, no, he wasn't the exception. They're like, my great-grandfather wouldn't lie. I'm like, he lied. And what I think is really interesting though, is like, why did he lie? Like, and these are people like, these, these are super educated American Jews. They would never believe this nonsense about anything else. Why are they believing this nonsense? This story is doing emotional work for people. And the emotional work it's doing is it's hiding the reality of American anti-Semitism. And what I find is really interesting is that belief in American exceptionalism, the idea that America is a total exception to Jewish history, that that you know, anti-Semitism has never happened in America, that belief is extremely deep in the Jewish community. It's, it's basically like a religious belief. And you can tell it's a religious belief because when you poke it, people get very angry. And that's part of the reason why whenever we have these anti-Semitic events that happen now, we're always surprised. That wasn't supposed to happen here. That wasn't the story I was told about this place. And I think what it goes back to though is that compromise that is part of living in a non-Jewish society, which involves Jewish self-erasure. In, in this book, I talk about two different forms of anti-Semitism that have plagued the Jewish community over centuries. 
And in the book, I name them after the holidays we have that celebrate triumphs over them, Purim and Hanukkah. The Purim story, which we're gonna be celebrating next week, is uh, really obvious, right? There's like a big bad guy who wants to kill all the Jews, right? There's nothing subtle here, not hard for anyone to understand. What I think is really interesting though is the Hanukkah story because there's no point in the Hanukkah story where anyone says, let's kill all the Jews. Doesn't come up. It's still about destroying Jewish civilization, but it works a little differently. In the Hanukkah story, of course, you have this Hellenized regime that takes over uh, ancient Judea. And at first it's like this soft persuasion where they're like, well, you know, we have this awesome Greek culture and like, why would you not want to be part of it? And at first the Jews in Judea go along with this. They think like we can be a good vassal state and they build, for example, a gymnasium in Jerusalem for the Greek games. Um, and Greek games are not just like the way we think of, I don't know, the NFL today. Greek games is like wrapped up with the religion. It's like, it's, it's the way to be a person who matters in the society is to participate in these Greek games. If you have ever been to an art museum, perhaps you have noticed that Greek athletics were played in the nude. And the Jews of Judea quickly realized that they needed to recruit teenage Jewish boys to participate in these Greek games. These teenage Jewish boys then had their circumcisions reversed so they could participate in these Greek games. I don't even wanna know how that's possible medically, but what I think is really interesting about this is that at this point in the history, no one is making them do that. This is just what you had to do to be a person who mattered in that society. It's only five years later that they outlaw circumcision. And this pattern of Jewish self-erasure is something you see over and over again in Jewish history. Another example, so you see it in, let's say the Spanish Inquisition. There's these situations where Jews are put to a test where they're like, like there's something, it's, there's this editing that happens from part of the non-Jewish society. Really vivid example of this comes from the Soviet Union, which, in, there's, uh, in 1918, the Soviet Union actually creates what's called the Yevsexia, the Jewish sections of the Communist Party, whose goal is to spread Marxist propaganda among the Jews of what was the Russian Empire. Their slogan was, um, at this time, to, to spread their message was, we are not anti-Semitic, we are just anti-Zionist. This is in 1918. 30 years before the creation of the state of Israel, it's probably not about Netanyahu. And what's really interesting about this is, you know, of course, in the process of only being anti-Zionist and not, oh, and by the way, they're like, and also we're Marxists, so that means we're anti-religious. So we love Jews, but, you know, you just can't, you know, support, is, support Zionism, study Hebrew, or uh, practice Judaism. But otherwise, we love you. Um, yeah, and in the process of not being anti-Semitic and just being anti-Zionist, they managed to, you know, imprison, persecute, torture, and murder tens of thousands of Jews. So this form of anti-Semitism requires Jews to participate in their own erasure and humiliation. And it happens when this broader non-Jewish society is editing how Jews are allowed to express their identities. And basically it's this broader non-Jewish society also, even in the most benign forms, is putting Jews into the boxes that they know best, um, that make sense to them. Um, I often speak at college campuses about this book. And 
when I'm in these college campuses, I'm often uh, presented with this questions from the students where they're asking basically, are Jews a religion? You know, are Jews white? Are Jews a nationality? And the answer to those questions is that Jews predate all of those categories. You're trying to put Jews in a box, Jews predate the box. And what I found is these boxes are then used to erase Jewish experiences. So for example, I remember one campus where I spoke and a student said to me, you know, my professor says that Jews are white, so they never experience bigotry. And I was like, okay, well, you know, there are 10 things wrong with that statement. I could sit here and spend 20 minutes unpacking all 10 of those things, but let's not. Let's pretend that your professor is correct and Jews are white and they therefore never experience bigotry. I imagine your professor would then also say to white people in the LGBTQ community they're, that they're never, they never experience bigotry because like, you know, they're white. And there's also a similar kind of dynamic when you have people saying to Jewish community, it's like, we love you, we're not anti-Semitic, but like if you're supporting Israel, like, you know, that's gross and that's unacceptable. Again, I bring up the same analogy where I say, would you say to people in the LGBTQ community, we love you and we're not homophobic at all and we totally accept you and we're so thrilled that you're here, never bring your partner with you in public anywhere ever. We love you. I think that there's, what I think is really interesting about this is you see how we butt up against the limits of a pluralistic society where there is this moral to, there, there, when I brought in the um, idea of the gentleman's agreement, and when you look at how that sort of has filtered down to us through those decades of education about the Holocaust, let's say, in the form of, here's this boy who died in the Holocaust who's just like you and me. If you think about the way that we educate people to, you know, to live in a, in a pluralistic society in this country is our idea, our idea is basically that we shouldn't be mean to people who are different from us because they're actually not different from us. They're just like everyone else. And I think that this hits up against the outer limit of diversity. And what you find is that, and I, what I wanna suggest is sort of a, a possibility of a way to do this better. I was at a, uh, I speak often also at what are now called DEI events, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and about a, a month or two ago, I was speaking at one of these events at the Kansas City Chamber of Commerce. And one of the people at that uh, event was telling me about a recent event in their city where, I don't even know if you could call it an event at this point, it's just like a normal day, um, where there had been, in whatever the busiest intersection in Kansas City is, there had been a man standing on this intersection for eight hours a day for like weeks on end, holding a giant sign that said, it's the Jews. I mean, first of all, maybe this person needs a job. But the interesting thing about this is that, you know, this person who I was speaking with, uh, who, who I was speaking, who brought this event up at this event, said, well, you know, obviously this is this anti-Semitic provocation. And I said, yes, on our planet, that's what that is. But I want you to imagine an alternate universe where the person who's standing on a street corner holding up a sign that says, it's the Jews, what that person means by that is, it's the Jews, they invented the weekend. 
it's the Jews. They taught their kids to read before the printing press was invented. And, you know, it just occurred to me that like, there's actually this problem going, going in, which is less to, do with, less to do with malice than ignorance. And this is where I feel like there is an opportunity. Um, I have, one of the things I've discovered in, in talking about this book across the country with many different audiences is that there are a lot of people with a lot of goodwill um, among non, our non-Jewish neighbors who really want to be in today's parlance good allies and really just don't know how. And what I realized in speaking to so many of these people is that there's one thing that they know about Jews, which is that they were murdered in the Holocaust. That is the only thing they know about Jews. And what I think is sort of troubling about this is that this, what is troubling about this is that what they have been trained to see is Jews as people with no agency. This is the only way that they are, they're taught to see Jews as Jews, they're people who are powerless. The problem is when you are powerless, you have no agency, you also have no dignity. Fortunately, I think that this is also an opportunity because our community was very successful in getting Holocaust education into all of these many schools across the country, perhaps not enough. But imagine if all those people who, the one thing they knew about the Jews is the Holocaust, imagine if the one thing they knew about the Jews was the content of Jewish civilization. As I've been, uh, when, I, when I wrote this book, this is my first nonfiction book, and I hadn't realized at the time that when you write a nonfiction book describing a problem, people aren't satisfied with your description of the problem. They then expect you to solve the problem. And since I published this book, I've had people asking me all across the country, so what's your solution to this problem? And I'm thinking like, are you really asking me to give you the final solution to the Jewish question? Because I really wasn't prepared to give that to you. But um, in thinking about this more, I'm sort of realizing that there is an opportunity to turn this problem inside out and to take advantage of the fact that most people are experienced, it's not malice, but ignorance. And when you think about those people who the only thing they know about Jews is that they died in the Holocaust, is they're not wrong to think that because that's the only thing in the high school history textbook. The only thing it says in the high school history textbook about Jews is that they died in the Holocaust. Maybe there's a paragraph at the beginning about the Israelites. It doesn't tell you those people are Jews. They're people who died a long time ago, who cares? But what I really think is that, well, this, and so, but now I imagine like, what if we were to share the blessings our tradition has given us on street corners? This is not my solution to anti-Semitism, which I really is not the Jewish community's problem to solve other than to insist on our ability to protect ourselves. But it is my solution to the spiritual crisis that anti-Semitism brings about in people who have not had the gift, the gift of knowing anything about who Jews are. I think that everyone, Jewish and non-Jewish, needs a basic Jewish education. I think it should be taught in public schools. But I also think everyone in the Jewish community needs it too. Because once you are steeped in the eternal staying power of Jewish civilization, you are not going to be scared off from being Jewish by someone else's pathology or insecurity. But I think that this is essential to teach to everyone 
because Jews are not big players in the history of the West. You really can't understand the history of Western civilization without understanding Judaism. And what I mean by this is not like, oh, let's look at all these Jewish Nobel Prize winners. I'm talking about something much more basic than that. I'm talking about Torah. And when I say Torah, I mean Torah in a political sense. Yes, Jewish culture, the culture that we are privileged to possess, starts with Torah. It starts with the covenant that creates a partnership between humans and God. Now, I know that many people in this room right now that I said this are about to tune out because you think that I am talking about what our non-Jewish neighbors call religion. But Judaism predates what they call religion. And I think that all of us need to understand the radical meaning of Torah and what it introduces to the world. And I'm going to do this in like three minutes for you. The found, just to demonstrate that you actually could teach this in public school, the foundational concept that Torah gives us is, one, a resistance to idolatry, and two, an understanding that freedom requires responsibility. These two ideas, resistance to idolatry and that freedom requires responsibility, these two ideas are the antidote to tyranny. Today, so let's unpack those. Today, when you think about, if I say idolatry, you probably are thinking about like praying to a statue. That is not what idolatry is, and it's not what it ever was. In the ancient world, societies had many gods, and one of the gods was the dictator. You see this in ancient Egypt, where the pharaoh was one of the gods. Jews have one god, and that is our moral structure. So when Jews say they are not bowing down to idols, what they actually mean is that they are not bowing down to tyrants. This is a resistance to tyranny. I talked about freedom requiring responsibility. The other key component of Judaism is the idea of commandedness. The idea of commandedness, that we are commanded by God to follow these moral instructions. What this means is we have free will because it would not make sense, as many, many rabbis throughout Jewish history have pointed out, it would not make sense for God to give commandments to people if people didn't have free will, because otherwise, why would you have to tell them what to do? Um, the point of people having free will is that it means that freedom requires responsibility. Freedom is not freedom to do whatever you want. Freedom is a responsibility to take on what you need to do to build a just society. I'm gonna give one very simple example of this. I gave that, I, the example I gave earlier about Jews invented the weekend. Sounds kind of like a joke. Um, it's not a joke. Here's what I think is really interesting about this idea. Um, we often today maybe think about Shabbat, about the Sabbath as a ritual experience. Like, you know, there's things you can and can't do on Shabbat. Okay, that's not really what Shabbat is. Shabbat is a social justice initiative. And here's how deeply this social justice initiative goes. In our era, we all know about the different um, anti-Semitic tropes and caricatures that plague our era. Here's one that you've never heard before. You know what one of the anti-Semitic stereotypes in ancient times was? That Jews were lazy. You know why? Because other empires that took over the Jewish people we're like, what's wrong with these people that there's a one day out of seven where they are bums and do nothing? 
And the reason they thought that is because in the ancient world, leisure was only for the wealthy. No one had leisure except for wealthy people. And this was, but what Shabbat actually is, is a social justice initiative. It is saying that every single person, even domesticated animals, every single person in a society, no matter what their social status is, has the right to decide the most important thing, which is what they do with their time. These are radical ideas. This failure to bow to tyrants and this taking on of obligation of social responsibility, these two things are what explains the Jews' resilience and how the Jews endure as a counterculture that runs through the whole history of the West. Um, there was the, uh, the historian Salo Barone, a 20th century Jewish historian, used to say that he was pushing back against the lachrymose view of Jewish history. Lachrymose meaning full of tears, like that Jewish history is a litany of one disaster after another. And what I think is interesting about that idea is that you can't really ignore the lachrymose parts of Jewish history. They are there, they are with us. Unfortunately, they will probably be with us in the future. But what I think is remarkable about Jewish history is not the litany of horror, but the litany of creative resilience. It's like what psychologists now call post-traumatic growth. How after each disaster, this community has been able to reinvent itself and create something new. Um, I am, as you can tell, a prophet of doom, but I wanna leave you with a, a note of hope um, to give you some, an example of um, the way that we could turn this story around. Um, as you heard, in addition to being a writer, I'm also an academic, I teach Hebrew and Yiddish literature. And uh, about five years ago, I was at an academic conference at the University of Washington for um, people who, it was for Hebrew scholars, people who teach Hebrew at different universities. And pretty much everybody at this conference was a Jewish academic who teaches Hebrew, except there were three people who were sitting in the back of this conference at every session taking very careful, careful notes. These three people were from the Wampanoag Nation. Wampanoag are the Native Americans who are uh, native to Eastern Massachusetts. These are the people whose ancestors encountered the pilgrims. They were at this Hebrew conference because they, their goal was to revive the Wampanoag language, which had not been spoken in 250 years. They wanted to revive it and turn it back into a living language. And they were at this Hebrew conference because as they said to us, the Hebrew scholars, we wanna know how you did it. And what I would say to all of you is, don't you wanna know how we did it too? We have so much to offer the world, but it requires embracing and celebrating our dignity as living Jews. Thank you so much for listening to me. No one listens to me like this at my house. Um, it's, it's, it's hard probably to be as uh, provocative in many ways as your book's title was, which is why I love it. Um, but let me ask you a question that may be provocative, maybe you've been asked before, what, what do we do with the issue? I'm not going to call it a problem, but the issue of Jews loving dead Jews. What, what do we do with the issue of Jews unifying around anti-Semitism, unifying around the idea of building Holocaust museums? Um, right after the Pittsburgh shooting, this room, we had a community service was filled, overflowing out into the um, uh, Rotunda. So is that 
something to consider as part of, of the, the problem and is there a solution? And the second question that I had as I was sitting here was, I just heard Rabbi David Wolby say a couple of weeks ago, how great it is that our current president and last president both have Jewish grandchildren. And what's that about? So those are my two questions. You can ask two? Uh, you can ask, you can ask more than two. So let's start with the let's start with the first question and then I'll pass it on to Rabbi Mason Morgan, but this idea of Jews loving their Jews. Sure. Um, uh, well, so a lot of people ask me this. Um, I do think that the role of the, the sort of dead Jews problem is different. It plays a different role within the Jewish community than it does outside of it. Um, because the reality is like all of Judaism is based on dead Jews, right? I mean, that's like, you know, the whole thing is based on this historical consciousness. Um, I mean, we all stood at Sinai right? We all came out of Egypt, right? I mean, this whole, you know, we're, we're reading the same book every year over and over again, right? I mean, there's this sort of like, you know, you've got, you know, looking around the room here, all the York side uh, plaques, right? I mean, there's, this is like the, there's a lot of uh, investment in the past is the foundation of Judaism. So that, but I think that's not what you're referring to when you, based on what you said about, you know, the room fills up after the Pittsburgh massacre, um, you know, people are funding these Holocaust museums, I do think that there's a problem. And I think that part of it, I think a lot of it comes from uh, the environment we're in. I think we don't even know how much of this we've absorbed. Mm. I, um, I, give, I, mean, I remember, um, I forget which city I was in where I was speaking, where someone was, some Jewish community leaders were complaining to me about somebody in the city who had donated some enormous amount of money to build a Holocaust museum. And they said, you know, we could have taken that money and given every single kid, every single Jewish kid in the city, free Jewish day school K to 12. Mm -hmm. And they're like, why are we not doing this? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, yes, I find this in, in very problematic, but I also don't, I don't think that there's like this binary of like Jews and non-Jews. I think that there's sort of this mm. spectrum of people who have a Jewish education and people who don't have a Jewish education. And a lot of Jews are in the category of people who don't have a Jewish education. And so... I'm not particularly surprised that there are a lot of Jews whose connection to being Jewish is that they learn about the Holocaust because they got the same public school education as everybody else. Guess what? That's also the only thing they ever learned mm. about Jews. Um, but what this means to me is that there's an opportunity. Mm. There's an opportunity to change this. Um, there's an opportunity to flip this narrative. Nice. Yeah. So Thank you. I feel like there was another question that I no, oh, about that. <laughs> Okay. Oh, oh, Jewish grandchildren. Yeah. I just, well, I mean, that, I, I mean, you know, so there's the path in the future, right? I mean, don't we all want Jewish grandchildren? Right. We all should be so fortunate as these presidents to have Jewish grandchildren. Well played. <laughs> Thanks. Well played. Nice. nice. <laughs> well, hello. Hi. Um, first, first thing is, I think we need to do a 23 and me because I'm pretty sure there's a dead Jew somewhere that we are related. Well, that's yeah, true for all of us. Yeah. Right? Uh, I, I think, I think, I think, I think it's Abraham. Abraham. Yeah. <laughs> was he a Jew? I mean, David was. King David. There you go. Yeah. We go back to King yeah. David. King David was um, But yeah, Jinji's with big opinions. And yes. Um, that was true for King David as well. Um, so I want to, first of all, shout out the Congregation Beth Israel book group because there's a number of people here in the room who we did our homework and we oh, wow. read your book. Uh, and you know we all, we came together and we just got, was it like just last week? It feels like a while ago, but um, we all discussed your book. And so my first question is actually comes from the, from the group. Um, 
uh, when we talked about it last week. You would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. It would have been great. Um, mm -hmm. And that, my question is, this question that comes from this group is about uh, how we love living Jews. And uh, specifically, you did address how we can, as a people, do better to love the living and love our lives as Jews. But their question was, how do you, as a Jew, live this message? How do you embody this in your life? Great question. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for reading. Um, this is the center of my life. Um, so, um, and so I, there's sort of two things that I, I feel very fortunate that as a writer, I was born into a religion, or a, I should say a culture, because I don't really think it's a religion as you heard. I was born into a civilization that, like, obsesses over books. You know, reads the books over and over again, dances with books, kisses books, right? I mean, this is a great place for a writer to be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I, you know, the way I, you know, and, and so if your question is about, like, you know, am I an observant Jew? The short end, I mean, it sort of depends who's asking whether I'm more or less observant than you. But, like, I mean, this is something that infuses my everyday life. Um, but I, what I want to say about it to distinguish is that um, what's important to me is creative reinvention of tradition. Mm. So I'm going to give just one example of how this plays out in my house. Um, so I so I host Passover Seder every year, example. This is just one example. I host Seder. Um, I'm from a very large family. My parents have, thank God, 14 grandchildren. Um, and so it's a lot of people. Um, and yeah, I remember dealing with the dilemma the first time I was hosting the Seder of, we were doing a, a Seder that's very traditional and that we're doing every single page of the Haggadah. And so it's like, well, we have all these little kids who are jumping out of their seats. What are we going to do? Every single page of the Haggadah is like an elaborate interactive activity. This is like a Vegas Seder. <laughs> so when I say a Vegas Seder, this is, I'm just going to give one point, one thing that we do. So, and also I should say it's traditional that we do every single page of the Haggadah. Not traditional, we do use technology. So um, we... The, what I, we now have done for the plagues and Dianu is we have, have you ever been to one of those like Halloween walkthroughs oh, yeah. where you walk through and there's like, you know, teenagers dressed as zombies jumping out of closets and, and it's like, so we actually have a very small basement, but we, we put up all black paper and it's divided into this like walkthrough with different little mini rooms in it. It's, um, it's all black paper with neon paint, you have black lights. Um, and each room that we have all these kids are as actors who are acting out different scenes and it's, it changes every year. Um, so it's like the kind of thing where like, you know, one kid will pop out of the closet in a Grim Reaper costume for the angel of death and like, you know, slay the firstborn. We have a laser swamp for the parting of the Red Sea. I don't know if people know what it, it's like. If you go to a rock concert, it's like we put, we put blue, we cleared out our garage. We put blue lasers at waist height around the room. We have fog machines. Um, and then so it, it creates this effect where at the level of the laser, it's like a surface of water where you see water rippling. And when you walk, it parts for you. So it's like, you know, you walk through this, it's like the red. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we, one year my husband made these LED light animals for all the animals in Chad Gadya. And so it's like we drop the lights and then each person has, and then like you, you're, it's like a neon of each of the animals and characters. So they light up each, it's like, no, my kids have no idea that there are other people who think that satyrs are boring. You know? <laughs> like it doesn't, like it doesn't come up. You know? like, it's like in every, it's completely different. Um, and yeah, so this is, uh, so that's an example. So like reinventing the tradition and making it your own, because that's the other thing I've noticed is like, 
when it's like when what did you learn in school what are the things you retained from what you learned in school was it the stuff you studied for on a test or was it the thing where you had a project mm -hmm. the project mm -hmm. right so for us everything is a project wow. and all my kids it's like every week i made for years when they were younger they would act out the, that i would be like you guys write a play about the parsha mm -hmm. and then they would act out the parsha they thought they know the, the parsha whole yes wow so first of all, what does a person have to do to get an invite to your Pesach? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really what I'm in it for tonight. <laughs> um, so that's awesome. And wow, I feel mine is so boring now. <laughs> you need a laser stop. <laughs> yes, that is awesome. Okay, so let me tell you my question before I build up to the question. Yes. The question is, what should American Jews do with Jewish power? Okay, now my build up to that is I think there's two growing trends. One is that a growing trend of tri tribalism. Jews who want to be tribalistic and reject universalism and the growing trend of universalism that rejects tribalism. I want to be universalist. I want to be human. I'm uncomfortable with my Jewishness, right? And so those two use Jewish power very differently. And how do you think if somebody has a minute with the president, a minute with the U.S. senator, how should Jews mostly leverage their power here? Um, it's a great question. Um, universalism, I feel, never works. Um, because universal has come from someone particular. And if you don't have like other, yeah, there's like the old joke, I think I think it was Karl Bach who used to make this joke that when people come to his concerts and someone came to him and said like, you know, when he said, well, someone came up to him and said, you know, I'm a Catholic, and he would know that person's a Catholic. They came up to him and they said, you know, I'm Protestant, knew that person's Protestant. When someone came up to him and says, I'm a human being, he's like, you're definitely a Jew, <laughs> right? Like, there's this like, need to, and that's, to me, that's part of that self-erasure is this like, you know, I'm part of the humanity of man. It's like, well, so are we all, right? Like, you don't have to say that part. The fact that you feel like you have to say that part is already all this internalized anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, so before like the minute with the president question, so, you know, as you mentioned, I, I was um, called in for this task, this White House task force on combating anti-Semitism. So I, I actually had the, you know, here's your five minutes of like, what are you suggesting we do? And, you know, there's all these other people in this conference world, just like more Holocaust education. I'm like, and I'm like, maybe we shouldn't be teaching people about dead Jews when they don't know anything about living Jews. Um, I think that we need, there's a few things. One is, as I mentioned, Jewish education. Like I, 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 this, what, what I told the White House task force was, you know, people are very susceptible to these online conspiracy theories. And on this topic, which is like the conspiracy theory to end all conspiracy theories, we're not giving them any other information because we're not telling people who are Jews. Basic question, who are Jews? Like, oh, are Jews are race, are Jews are nationality, are Jews are religion. Like, you're not even giving them that, nothing. I'm like, we need to educate people. Um, I am involved in a project actually with a museum that's uh, sort of trying to rebuild this kind of curriculum of like who are living Jews. Um, so that's the kind of thing I would talk about. But then the other thing is like building relationships because you know you mentioned like you know after the festival massacre, it's like you know um, all these people show up. Um, I remember a rabbi in I think it was Oregon somewhere else. I don't even remember. It's like this week's fire hose incident somewhere where some he was his synagogue was firebombed, and then he's like after the synagogue was firebombed, you know all the churches in the town they all showed up and like came to this vigil, and I was sort of like we never met before, you know <laughs> it was like you never called me before this week, and it's like you need to build those relationships like proactively. Right. So that's like when so that answers your question about so like yeah, I'm all in favor of like particularism, but like the universal piece of it is like, you know, is building those bridges, but coming from who you authentically are, right? And not erasing yourself to go into that relationship. 
right? That's, you know, and, and come into it because people are really curious, right? I mean, there's like a lot of, like I said, there's so much more ignorance than malice. People really want to know, like, who are Jews, like, actually, like, are curious. And so that's, you know, so that's the things that I would mention is, and, and this is something that actually it's um, in European countries where they have um, you know, national plans to combat anti-Semitism. There's always a component of that plan, which is fostering loving Jewish communities. Um, that's, a, you can't fight anti-Semitism without supporting living Jewish communities um, and creativity of Jewish life. So mm. there's my five seconds with the White House, yeah. That was more than five seconds. It was more than five seconds, that's true. <laughs> so this yeah. comes from online, okay. um, from Zoom. Can you talk about this question? Can you talk about what I observed as a common theme in your picture, the beauty and flaws of human nature and how it relates to your observations on bigotry, hypocrisy, and cowardice, as you depict them in images. That's a, that's a deep cut. Yeah, it's a really deep cut. <laughs> so, um, so the question is sort of about you know about my novels and as you said, uh, beauty and imperfection. I want to make sure I'm answering fairly. Uh, yeah, beauty, the beauty and flaws of human nature and how it relates to observations about bigotry, hypocrisy, and cowardice. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a novelist. I write about people, right? People are not concepts they're people people are also not symbols they're people um and you know i think that there's this what i have observed is this tendency to tend you know the, the sort of people love dead jews thing is you're turning dead jews into a symbol right to represent something um as opposed to and and it is dehumanizing to turn people into a symbol and that's why i was against this sort of you know if, if you're asking me just to vote universal versus particular i'm always going to vote particular because i'm a novelist and it's all about the particularities and the individuality and, and the uniqueness of every human being and that's something that i've learned from the torah mm -hmm. right about the divine image in each person and what it says in the talmud about that that you know that god stamps each person with the same die but each person is unique Unlike when we stamp first person with the same die, we want them all to be the same. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think what's what the commonality between all my work is is that I'm fighting against the the demand that our society has for conformity, mm. and I see Judaism as an uprising against the insistence that we all be the same. Right. Yeah. So, did you want to ask your another one? Because that was no, someone ahead. else's. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh. And then, yeah, and then we'll do So. Uh, Hold on, I have to open my book. Um, I was, I, you have notes. I do have notes. Um, I was uh, really struck by, uh, is actually related to the last question. In your uh, chapter about fictional dead Jews, may I read or would you like to share? Sure, you can read. It feels a little weird. Oh, do you want me to read it? I don't know, kind of. Sure. Here. Okay. Sure. The underlined and then just to there. Oh, yeah. Right? It would be weird if oh, you yeah. read it, which is, is right here. So this is in a chapter about, um, you know, it's, it was, a, it was one of my readers who, like, was like, you know, wrote me this lovely letter. It was like, she'd read one of my books about a pogrom survivor. And she's like, I read to the part about the horse being beaten and I threw the book across the room. She's like, I think it's better for, it's more of a service to mankind for people to write a book to where we laugh and enjoy yeah. and we're uplifted, right? So anyway, so um, you want me to read just for more you underline? Yeah. Yeah, so, well, okay. Dead Jews are supposed to teach us about the beauty of the world and the wonders of redemption. Otherwise, what was the point of killing them in the first place? <laughs> See, it is better if she reads it, right? Yes. Um, so my question is, um, yes, like I think that um, we do have this 
uh, challenge where we expect, um, where, where people, the people who love the dead Jews, expect to find this beautiful lesson in the story of the dead Jews. But slash and, the Jewish story is a story of challenge and redemption. And so how do we, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with this idea that we don't have darkness without light. You can't have redemption without needing to be freed from something. So how does um, a hope to eliminate the challenge, how does that change our hope for redemption? Does that question make sense? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I could try. What, how, yeah. how do we tell the Jewish story if we tell a story as survivors? That, um, I see what you're saying. Okay. As, as I said earlier, that I feel like the Jewish story is a story of creative resilience. It's not a story of eliminating horror. It's a story of reinvention and resilience and, frankly, resurrection. Um, my favorite example of this, which is something that I, I wrote one of my novels about, the novel I wrote right before this book was, it's the opposite of this book. The previous book was called Eternal Life, mm -hmm. and it's about a Jewish woman who can't die, who's been it's alive been for, she's been alive for 2,000 years. Another yes. She's been alive for 2,000 years. Read this one before the High Holy Days yes. last year. Well, so, and I just want to share with you this story that it's, it's a story in the Talmud that I tell in the book. It's about, um, the story of uh, Rabbi Yohanan Menzakai, right, who was in, living in the siege city of Jerusalem under, you know, the Roman siege of city. He sees that the Jews have revolted against the Roman Empire. They're not going to win. And he sees that, and he's like, how can I save what can be saved? And his idea is like, this whole place is going down in flames. And his so what he does is he fakes his own death. He has himself smuggled out of the siege city of Jerusalem in a coffin, He's brought to the and brought to the um, Roman General Vespasian's headquarters. Um, he then pops out of his coffin in, in front of Ro Roman General Vespasian and says, "Vivat Imperator," which means "Long live the Emperor." The Vespasian, in addition to being weirded out by this guy who just popped out of a coffin in his headquarters, is kind of like, "And I should have you executed for being disrespectful to me because I'm not the Emperor." A minute later, messenger rushes into the headquarters and says. Vespasian, urgent message, Nero just died in Rome. You have to go back to Rome to become the emperor. At that point, he looks at this guy who popped out of the coffin and is like, what can I do for you? Yeah. Uh, um, and then, you know, at that point, Yohanan ben Zakai, like, has this opportunity. You'd think he would say, like, you know, can we lift the siege? You know, maybe not burn down the city of Jerusalem, not destroy the temple. He's like, no. He's like, can I build this academy for Torah scholars in this beach town no one's ever heard of? And Vespasian's like, sure, yeah, do that. And then he goes off to Rome. His son Titus then destroys the temple, destroys Jerusalem. People go into exile for 2,000 years. Here's the interesting thing about this story. Both Yohanan ben Zakkai and Judaism in this story fake their own death in order to come back to life as something totally new. Right? He fakes his own death to get out of the city. And Judaism fakes its own death because Judaism before that is this temple ritual, right? It's like people sacrificing goats, right? Like the whole, the whole religion is about sacrificing goats. That's not what it's about now, right? I mean, and the reason it's not about that now is because this person saw this opportunity to re to to change it, right? And in a way that would allow it to survive this cataclysm. And so, to me, this this is absolutely you can't ignore the left for most parts of the story. But the beauty is not in like, oh, this is so sad that all these people die, and it's so sad, and it's a lesson about humanity, and we shall be nice to each other. It's about like. There's this horrible, you know, this horrible cataclysm that happens now. Mm. 
like we're all as Jews, we're living in the now what? Mm -hmm. Like every day as a living Jew, your life is now what? Mm -hmm. That is the challenge that's presented to you as a living Jew. Like there's no reason we should not still be here today, right? This is what Mark Twain wrote in you know in his essay for Harper's Magazine, right? He's wrote this essay called Concerning the Jews. And the very last paragraph, he says, like, you know, the Egyptian empire is dust. The Persians have, you know, have come and gone. Who's even heard of the Parthians anymore? All these ancient people are gone. Only the Jews remain. What's the secret of their immortality? This is the secret is creative resilience. Mm -hmm. One more. One more. Okay. <laughs> and then you can down. Excited out. So real quick, we've got, we've got uh, about 20 minutes left and our goal is to get some questions going. Um, my my last question, and I'll try to make it quick. Um, Sorry. It's okay. Creative resilience and that we tell the story. A uh, little kid once asked me, how long is forever? And I said, as long as you're telling the story, it's forever. So what story, you talked about the two, the two ideas for sure. Yes. Um, individual uh, responsibility and the idea about not worshiping saints. So what's, what are some other maybe quick hits on the, the story that we need to keep telling so that our work forever keeps going and sustaining. Sure. I'm going to give you two, this is like, this is so much fun. This is like swimming material for Rambo. Like, totally. This is like the two, second two, game. two favorite stories that I didn't mention up there. Um, okay. One is my story of Joseph, right? Um, when Joseph is in Egypt, um, you know, he's, he's uh, falsely thrown into prison. And then there's this, you know, the story is that the Egyptian pharaoh, this is the pharaoh before the enslavement, um, the Egyptian pharaoh has these dreams about seven fat cows, seven thin cows, seven fat sheets of grain, seven thin sheets of grain coming out of the Nile. He's like, I can't understand this dream. And then there's like this guy, this Hebrew slave in prison who knows how to interpret dreams. And then, you know, Joseph comes out and he's like, you're going to have seven great years of, you know, great harvest and seven bad years. And like, I just remember like reading this and, you know, you think as a modern person, like, oh, in ancient times, they thought dreams were about the future. And then, you know, now we're so much smarter and we think that dreams are just like, you know, about our fears and anxieties and stuff like that. No, 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 no. Pharaoh lives in a country with one water source. Good years, the Nile overflows a lot. Bad years, the Nile doesn't overflow a lot. He's aware of this pattern. He's worried about it. This is an anxiety dream. The novelty that Joseph brings to him is not there's going to be good years and bad years. Pharaoh knows that. The novelty Joseph brings to him is what Joseph says to him next. Joseph says to him, you know what you should do? is You should save the food from the good years so you have something to eat during the bad years. And then Pharaoh's like, wow, you're a genius. He's like, wow, that's really stupid. Pharaoh, what did you think of that? But this is where it's interesting. Why didn't Pharaoh think of that? Because Pharaoh is part of this polytheistic system where he's supposed to be a god. He's like, oh shoot, like I can't fix this, right? And then Pharaoh, but this polytheistic system is also a fatalistic system, right? Where the gods give, the gods take away. Who can ponder the ways of the gods? They're just fighting each other and we're just like pawns in their game. Joseph already is part of a tradition a partnership with God. Partnership with God means that God gave us brains and we're supposed to use them. We're supposed to solve problems in right. nature. This is like, this is what we call technology, right? This is like one of the gifts, this is like, like Shabbat and all these other things. This is another gift that the Jews give to the world is this idea that you are 
a partner with God. You are part of nature. You can, yeah, you can save the food from the good years so that you have something to eat during the bad years. Like, this is obvious to us. It's only obvious to us because it's already there in Joseph's idea. This is an idea that Judaism gives to the world. So that's one. Here's another quick one. Story of a lost book. Um, we have this constant anxiety in the American Jewish community. We're like, oh, we're assimilating. You know, there's like, there's, you know, every new Pew survey is about how there are fewer and fewer people who know it, you know, have anything to do with this community, blah, 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 blah. Okay. I want to reassure you that this is a really old problem. Mm-hmm. There's this recurring story about the lost book, and this is one of my favorite versions of it. It's in the Tanakh. I'm going to get this wrong. It's, I think it's in Malachi and the Book of Kings. It's, the, it's, it's actually on Passover. It's one of the Haftar's main. Um, King Josiah in ancient Judea is they're doing a renovation project in the temple. They're cleaning out the temple, they're renovating the bathrooms. As they're redoing the temp, the grout and the temple tiles in the bathroom, somebody, one of the workers, finds a lost scroll. Mm. And he brings that scroll out. He's like, Look what I found in the temple, this lost scroll. And they're like, Oh, what is this scroll? They open it up. They're like, We've never read this before. You know what the scroll is? It's the Torah. And then they're like, look at this Torah. They're like reading the scroll. They're like, it says in here that we're supposed to holiday called Passover that we're supposed to celebrate. <laughs> Maybe we should do that. They're like, should be great. And then it says in that year, the kingdom celebrated Passover for the first time in 400 years. I don't care what the Pew survey says. You know, as American Jews, we're way ahead of King Josiah because we've celebrated Passover in the past 400 years. <laughs> and the reason I mentioned this story is because this is another, like, we have this idea like, oh, tradition is this, like, constant thing where something's passed down from generation to generation. No. The pattern in Judaism is not passed down generation to generation. The pattern in Judaism is loss and reclamation every time. There's a generation that loses it, and then there's another generation that brings it back. That is the that is the tradition. The tradition is rejection and recovery, mm-hmm. loss and renewal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you love go. Yes, uh, I love your comment that teenagers should listen to me. That's not what's going on with the teenagers in my house. Sorry, uh, you'll be shocked to hear that. Yeah, teenagers in my house not so interested in listening to me. Um, but to your comment of like people love dead semites, like what? Why we stuck? You know, it really it really does suck that we use have to use this term that was created by anti semites. Because that's the origin of this term anti-Semitism. It was like a 19th century anti-Semites idea of how to make Jew hatred, which was the old term in German was Judenhaus, hating Jews. But you know, that didn't sound classy and they wanted to make it sound more like scientific. And so they changed it to anti-Semitism. So yeah, it really sucked that we're stuck with this term. Yeah, I mean, this should really be called something like, you know, anti-Jewish racism. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, the question was uh, the question was that uh, the the uh, person said that you know their own uh, family members had you know many many years ago changed their last name so they could be accepted to medical school and uh, you know what what what's this what do you suggest that people do about this like if you're facing this kind of situation today, um, I mean what I thought was so tragic in in learning about this sort of name change thing and I should say that 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 the whole story about the name change if you're interested. It's not my research. There's a historian named Kirsten Fermeglick who has a fantastic book about this with another great title. Her book is called A Rosenberg by Any Other Name. Highly recommend. Um, what, one of the things she t- says in that book is that these Jews who participated in this name change, that they were essentially were succumbing to discrimination instead of fighting it. 
right? It was like they were participating in the system, right? Because that felt easier than engaging in activism to change an unjust system. And, you know, that was to me just so heartbreaking to read. Um, and, but what I do say in my book is I, you know, I, I do thank these people for not for changing their names. And, and also like, I don't fault them for this choice. I understand why they did that. Um, but what I thank them for was creating the mythology of the Ellis Island story, because that story protected their descendants from the psychological damage of knowing this. Um, and I was grateful to them for creating this mythology, even though it wasn't true. Um, you know, to the analogy of like, what do people do today? As long as you're participating in succumbing to discrimination, then you're allowing it to continue. And that's the greatest problem. And so in terms of self-erasure, um, you know, changing a name is one thing. I'm gonna give a really simpler example that's a much more lower level. So changing a name is one thing. An even worse example would be correcting, correcting your circumcision in this example. I'm gonna give a real contemporary example. Um, one of my, my daughter, um, who's a teenager, has spent a couple summers in Israel. And my daughter actually is not on social media very much, weirdly. Um, but she was telling me how she's like, one of these trips she went on, she's like, I'm on a bus with all these teenagers. These people, they don't eat breakfast without putting it on TikTok. <laughs> she's like, they're not posting that they're in Israel mm. for six weeks. Wow. Six weeks in Israel, they're not posting it. To me, that's the, that is a version of changing your name, of reversing your circumcision. <laughs> like that's, that is a version of this. This problem isn't gonna end when people are participating in it. I, I don't fault the people who participated in it though, because I feel like, I used to feel sort of contempt for people who made those choices. Now I feel pity. Mm. I feel pity, mm. yeah. I actually had the most brilliant ancestors who decided the best way to assimilate our last name from Yankelovich was the Yanklowitz. Yeah. <laughs> that helps. Excellent. <laughs> oh, I want to add one thing to that. Oh, okay, sure. So if you, um, if you want to repeat that question, and yeah, also okay. someone on Zoom asked a different but related question, what role did Christianity have in leading Jews to erase themselves? Okay, uh, great questions. Um, so, the, so to repeat the question that was asked uh, someone here in the audience was, um, you know, there's, you know, a very famous dead Jew named Jesus. Why has he not come up in the book? Fair uh, restatement of, of the question. Okay. Um, and then the follow-up you just mentioned was, uh, right, this was, uh, you know, what role did Christianity have in leading Jews to erase themselves? Um, I actually, you know, um, I actually think that the, the, one of the things that is a little bit hard to talk about because it is so, um, it is so part of our culture here in the United States, because this is a culture that's so influenced by Christianity, is how much of the way we talk about dead Jews is influenced by Christianity. Um, and I only implied this in the book, um, but in the essay that I write about Anne Frank, where I call it everyone's second favorite dead Jew, I talk about how she has you know, there's this line in her diary where she's like, you know, I still believe in spite of everything that people are truly good at heart. And I say that, um, you know, and I say that like, you know, this is the line that people find inspiring. And I say, what people really mean by that is that it flatters them, mm -hmm. right? It makes them feel forgiven mm -hmm. for these lapses in our civilization that we took piles of murdered girls. And they're like, oh, this murdered girl said this, it must be true. I think there is an unspoken belief that's coming 
from a sort of a deep current of Christianity in our culture that is ex that is expecting good news to play this role. Because when you see this sort of attitude that people have towards someone like Anne Frank, it is this idea that there's these, you know, that there's this something that's very familiar to a lot of people in America about this idea that dead Jews are somehow offering you some kind of absolution for your sins. And I think that the problem is that that is not the way that we think about, um, you know, sin and redemption and repentance in, in Judaism at all. So we have a very different idea of the way that um, the way we handle sin and redemption. So, um, and but yet because we're in this sort of you know Christian majority culture, this sort of way of thinking is sort of seeped into the way even something like Holocaust education happens. Um, and so, and to the question of what role does Christianity have in Jews erasing themselves, there's also sort of this idea. Um, often when we talk about, and again, this is sort of just like it's like you know fish swimming in water, and you're like, what's water? Um, you know, this, the way we think we talk about religion in America is that the whole idea of what a religion is, is really coming from Christianity. And for that, and Christianity is a universalizing religion where there's sort of this expectation of, you know, bringing everyone into this. And that's not, um, that's, that isn't part of Jewish tradition. I mean, we accept, you know, we're happy to have people convert to Judaism, but it's not, we're not a proselytizing religion. We're not seeking out converse the way that some of our Christian neighbors are. And I think that because of that, there's sort of this, there becomes this sort of distorted idea of what Judaism is, where we're sort of, we're looking at Judaism through a Christian frame. And what I talked about in my remarks about gentlemen's agreement, part of that is this post-war understanding um, in American culture that like, you're allowed to be Jewish if we get to just call it a religion, like just make it a religion. It's not an ethnicity, it's not a culture, it's not any of these other things. We're, you're allowed to call be Jewish if it's a religion, because that's like what this society, that's like a category that this society can understand. And the problem is that Judaism is much, I mean, it, there's millions of people who are secular Jews, right? And those people are not any less Jewish than, you know, guy in a black hat. So, you know, this, it, this parent where it's like, you know, have you ever met a secular Mormon? Right, like it's not it doesn't make sense, right? So it's like this sort of ideas don't fit, and so I think that that is there is sort of a, something that, and I will admit that it was hard to write about because, um, you know, I'm writing in English for an English speaking audience, many of whom are people you know from many different backgrounds, and this is this is a real difference in Jewish and Christian philosophy and and and, and way of life that not way of life but a way of thinking about the world that I think is really, really hard for people outside of the Jewish tradition to grasp because they, they're, they're, there is no language for it. So we're missing a language. Um, one example I give is that, you know, I often say when I talk about this, Judaism isn't really a religion. Um, Jews are, and then people are like, well, then what is it? Here's the answer. Jews are a type of social group that was common in the ancient Near East, very uncommon in the West today, is a joinable social, a joinable tribal group with a shared history, culture, home and homeland, and part of that culture is a non-universalizing religion. Okay, that was like a paragraph. In Hebrew, there's one word for that, which is two letters long, one syllable. Um, that whole paragraph I just said. Um, we don't have that word in English, but we have it in Hebrew. And I think that those lack of language, we don't have the language to talk to each other across these traditions. And when I talked about having like 
proactive or building relationships, not just like reactive when something bad happens. I think that that's sort of where those conversations need to begin is sort of just even examining, like when you, even when you talk about interfaith conversations, it's like, well, is Judaism really a faith? I don't know that it is the way that our Christian neighbors might use that term. And so it's like, you know, think about what is, what do these terms even mean? What, whose language are we using? And I think that that's, you know, worth having that conversation so that we can understand each other better. I don't know if that really answered your question. <laughs> I hope I, I tried. Rabbi Mason Barkin and I went to Israel with uh, our friends from uh, Black Baptist Church. And some of our members who are here tonight observed how intense the, the just watching them baptize, get baptized in the Jordan River was. And one of our members who's here tonight, she asked us the first thing after all 62 of these uh, wonderful, very faith-filled people um, immerse themselves in the Jordan. And her question was, why don't we have something like that in Judaism? It's called the mikvah. It, no, 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 okay. not the mikvah. Okay. Why don't we have it as a, uh, as why don't we feel as emotionally, faithfully connected um, to God in Jewish ritual as they do in their immersion? And we had some quick answers for them. I'm just wondering, like, what is the Jewish equivalent of our of our faith? Even given the Kaplanian stuff, and we're a people, and we're a civilization, the Reform movement, Protestantized Judaism. So, what, what, what is it that? Again, I'm digging here with you about what is it that that we can do, um, teach our kids, experience with our kids that that can be that immersive experience, expressive of. Uh, I mean, all the Jews are probably watching these wonderful people get baptized, and I'm just thinking. Yeah, we, we, I don't know. Pick that up. Maybe you're not hanging out with right people. Well, that could be. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I can think of, uh, you know, the experiences I have all the time. Yeah. That are like this. Um, you know, experiences that, you know, people in my community have all the time that are like this. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't think I've ever had a Yom Kippur where I wasn't in tears. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever had a Shabbos where I didn't come close to tears. I don't think I've ever had a forum where I wasn't laughing my head off. I don't think I've ever had a wedding where I wasn't, you know, overwhelmed with joy. I don't think I've, you know, I, I still, you know, sitting beside someone with a shiva. I don't think that, I mean, you know, I don't think I've ever gone to the hotel without crying. Mm. I just remember my children all being alarmed by that. Mm. By being, not by me crying, but like, well, yes, but also by them being like, I remember my daughter being like, Actually, one time when she went by herself, like not with the family, like when she was on one of these trips to Israel with her peers, being like, I remember texting me, like, I'm crying at the hotel and I really don't know why. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, everybody cries at the hotel. You don't know why. And like, that's, yeah, yeah I, I've, I've felt that many, 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 many times. Um, yeah, there are a lot of people who feel that every single Sabbath. I go back. I think you're not hanging out with the right people. <laughs> Well, I am the right people. <laughs> I think it goes back to what you said, though. It's it's about waking up and booting Jewish every day and seeing the world through Jewish eyes every minute of every day. Yes. And then it comes. It's it 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 comes to you through those experiences. And I think that there's a reluctance, if not a fear, on the part of American with American Jews, with large, 
to experience life that way at all times immersively. Yes. Oh God, not an amazing yes. question. And then we're going to wrap up. Okay. Then you're going to wrap up because it is. Yeah. Well, I actually, I think that there's a challenge in this here for us who are a part of reformed Jewish communities. Because I think as reformed Jews, part of the evolution of reformed Judaism was about taking some of that emotion and exuberance out of mm -hmm. our worship and our experiences in order to assimilate and be more like our Protestant neighbors. And so in that process of- But not your Baptist neighbors. But not our Baptist neighbors, right? <laughs> we- um, You were going more Episcopalian. Yeah. <laughs> I that, um, but I think that this is a challenge for us as Reformed Jews as we do this work of loving our living Jewish selves, of not being um, so confined to the decorum of the the holy experience and allowing ourselves to be emotional in it, mm -hmm. allowing ourselves to go deep um, and to not always have it be about sitting nicely in the chair and opening the book to the right page, but like, what does it feel like to get up and sing and dance? Right. What does it feel like to be so moved on Yom Kippur that you weep? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a part of a typical Reformed Jewish mm -hmm. experience, and I appreciate the challenge to go deep and get emotional. Nice. Reb. Let's hear it for the amazing Kara Horner. Oh my God. I want to thank our wonderful partners at CBI. Thank you. Uh, Rabbi Mason Barkin, Rabbi Khan, and the whole team for partnership and sponsorship. And our great friends at Scottsdale Arts and Dr. Jackie Chenkind for uh, initiation and partnership. And thank you all. Keep learning the Valley Day to drive. Happy Purim. Happy Pesach. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.